This is a very vulgar episode of this podcast. So I apologize. I'm like I'm like your own personal magic. I'm popping up. And you I'm, are. I'm jumping around on little my, discs. You are my Ileana, just like stepping discs, opening up like a demon's <laughs> poking out of your shoulder. And you're just like, hey, let's talk about how much you want to fuck Colossus. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Matt Lubchansky, a comics artist and editor at the Eisner Award-nominated independent comics magazine The Nib, for which the editorial team, including Matt, won the Ignatz Award both last year and, again, just this past weekend, so mazel on that. Matt is here today to chat with me about Pyotr Nikolaevich Rasputin, the X-Man Colossus, and I am very excited about it. Um, just as a note for listeners, Matt uses they-them pronouns, so please bear that in mind if you have thoughts about this episode on social media. Thank you so much. Uh, Matt, thank you for being my guest. How are you today? I'm doing lovely, and I'm really excited to spend the next seven hours arguing with you over whose boyfriend Pyotr is, because he's mine. You already have a beautiful wife, mm-hmm. so I so feel missing, like So I'm I... obviously missing a boyfriend is the oh well see so this is the bisexual conundrum right mm. is you mm, now mm. i'm gonna get canceled for saying that but i i i'm not suggesting anything <laughs> i'm not suggesting anything untoward i'm just saying if i were bisexual i would want one of each so that I was really fast there. i got you in like you got me seconds. you got me canceled in like 30 seconds i'm just it was more that i'm thinking i've been thinking about kitty pride a lot because mm. in uh the most recent issue of Marauders, Kitty kissed a girl on panel. And so Ooh. it was like, finally, after a bazillion years since her, lit- like literally her introduction, it's like, oh, Kitty Pride is bisexual and we can all talk about it finally. That's amazing. But then the question of like, should she date Pyotr or Ileana came up? And unfortunately, they're siblings. So I don't think she yeah, could, can date great. both of them. It's but yeah. but I, I was thinking like, if I were Kitty, I'd want one of each. I don't know. We're going to cut all of this. No, we're not. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's I demand fine. that it stays in demand it it's literally by visibility week i promise that i love and respect bisexual people in any case (laughs) um, before we get started uh this is episode four of cerebro we are only four weeks into the podcast the response so far has been absolutely incredible so thank you to all the listeners who have interacted on social media or written into the fan mail account i do have just a few quick things i'd like to address before we really begin this episode First, I have a correction, which is in last week's episode about Emma Frost, I talked about a classic X-Men backup story where she gives a sort of feminist manifesto about her revealing costume choices. And I said that while I liked the story a lot, obviously it had been written by a man, so we have to bear that in mind. Uh, Listener Samali pointed out on Twitter that the story was actually written by Anne Nascenti, which I had forgotten and which makes me feel a lot better about how much I like it. I had it in my head for some reason that Claremont had written it because he wrote other Hellfire Club backups for that reprint book. So I just sort of combined it in my head. Um, But this also gives me the opportunity to encourage you to read other work by Anne Nascenti, who uh, was an absolute trailblazer and still is for Wind Riders in superhero comics. If you listen to episode one on Betsy Braddock, it's worth noting that Anne Nascenti created Mojo and Spiral, 
in the 1985 miniseries Long Shot with artist Art Adams, which is a great read, establishes the whole Mojo verse and the title character she also created, Long Shot, um, ended up folded into the X Men as well. And I'm sure we'll get to him eventually. Uh, Anna Senti also has an amazing run on Daredevil if you are into Daredevil. So check that out. Um, I'd also like to clarify a comment from last episode where I said that in contrast to Emma, Storm and Scott and Jean are loyal soldiers for Xavier. I didn't mean for the guy Xavier, like the literal person Charles Xavier. I meant for like, quote unquote, Xavier's dream, which manifests differently for each of them. The point I was trying to make was just to stress that Emma, like Magneto, is someone operating from a totally separate political framework and that she and Magneto and Xavier sort of have their own followers who ascribe to their specific ideology. So I'm sorry if that was unclear. It didn't quite come out correctly. I would never in a million years besmirch Storm by calling her a follower of any specific person. And certainly Gene and Scott have called Xavier on his shit when he's been wrong before. So I just wanted to clarify that. The last note before we begin, a few of you have written in to ask about specific jumping on points, which is something I do want this podcast to help uh, people with because the X-Men is not known for its easy jumping on points. So people said they would love in, uh, this. This came up a couple different times. If in each episode, I could sort of explicitly recommend a few arcs or storylines to pick up to read about the character being discussed. I think that's a great idea. So I'm going to incorporate that towards the end of each episode after the Real Housewives game. And on today's episode, I'll give you Rex for Betsy, Kurt, and Emma in addition to Piotr so that we're all caught up. All right. Now, with that out of the way, Matt, let's yes. talk about Colossus. Please. Yeah, I'm excited that you're here to talk about Colossus with me because it feels very appropriate um, for context on Matt and my friendship. <laughs> I was going to say that I, I, it's incredible that I did manage so fast to get on to your podcast just to talk about communism as fast as possible. Correct. Yeah. Um, because Matt and their wife, Jaya, are two of the sort of leftist friends. Obviously, all of my friends are left of center. But I would say that for many years, I think I had certain friends who sort of humored me as their very well-intentioned incrementalist liberal friend who was not leftist enough. And then the 2016 election like made my brain explode. And I was like, everything I've ever believed was wrong. And then Matt and Jaya kind of, along with a couple of our other friends, like quietly, but firmly like lured me down the yellow brick road to more radical leftism. So uh, it is fun to have you on to talk about the Soviet Union's greatest superhero. Because he really is, I mean, in his first appearance in Giant Size, when Xavier is all, come with me, I want to teach you about your powers. Or he's like, but mother, father, like if I have superhuman powers, should they not be used for the benefit of the state? Yeah. And like, should they, should I not use them to serve our community of farmers here in like bumfuck Siberia or wherever an they are? Yeah, they're in actual Siberia, which I love. <laughs> I do love that, especially because it looks so nice. Yeah, I don't know. It's, the, it's like the three weeks a year. I mean, I've read that issue a million times, but for some reason it had never quite clicked that Piotr's in Siberia because it looks yeah. like a balmy sort of amber waves of grain kind of location. Yeah, they're there on the summer solstice and it looks like that <laughs> the day after it starts snowing. The one day of the year. So I would love for you to sort of share your affinity for Colossus, your history with the character, why? Because when I when I told you I was doing this podcast, you said Colossus is mine, and you claimed Colossus, like, immediately. So talk to me about it. Sure. I think, for me, I you know, I'm a very visual thinker. 
Um, and right off the bat, he just looks so fucking cool, man. I don't know. It's hard to like, he's got a very, he's got a very cool costume. He's made of metal. He rules. It's just, he's just neat to look at. Um, I think I'll be the, uh, the, probably the fourth person to mention the, uh, Konami arcade game. When I was setting up this podcast and I was picking the sound cues, cause I, I, I ripped essentially. The theme song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I ripped the whole Konami sound test to make oh, that because I had to get like the, the audio clips. And uh, so I found this, the full sound test online and um, I really wanted to use the Colossus sound for something. Oh, the sound is so, yeah, nope. I'll add it in post. So like right now we're going to play it. And there it is. But so I good. felt like if you weren't in your early to mid thirties, you would have no idea what that sound was. Even though the, <laughs> like those of us who know would be like, yeah. yes. That's the sound. Only, only, only kids who hung out at the the Crown Theaters in Trumbull, Connecticut, in 1994 know all about that sound. Only the 90s kids who hung out at the Fun Sport Bowling Alley in Mount Kisco, New York, understand. Did they not have the Konami game at the Pizza Pizzazz? Ah, uh, Pizza Pizzazz. R.I.P. R.I.P. I um, that was in the comic shop where I bought all my all my comics was next to Pizza Pizzazz in Mount Kisco. Ah. Uh. What a, what a town. This is something I actually haven't mentioned in the podcast before, but just FYI, I am recording live from Westchester County, New York, which is where I grew up. And like the Xavier Mansion, if it existed, is about 20 minutes from my house. So that was part of why the X-Men got me immediately because I was like, it's right here. And I got to be honest with you, nothing interesting happens in Westchester, New York. So the idea that the X-Men could be around the corner was really thrilling. Otherwise you had to, you really did have to go into the city for anything interesting otherwise to occur. But um, you're also from this area. I, I grew up in the, in the burbs around here also. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think that's part of the existential terror of the X-Men, right? Is they could be anywhere at any time, including somewhere boring like Westchester. And that's the point. Yeah. It's like, look who moved in down the street. It's the mutants. I mean, that's what's mm. scary about it. Right. Yeah, I was, I was in my head, it was analogous to like uh, the BPRD being in Fairfield, you know, yes. it was, like the same sort of move. Um, oh yeah. So like I, in the, in the Konami game, I just loved uh, the way he like transformed was very cool. It was, I would always play as him or Nightcrawler, like everybody else. Uh, well, if you were me, you always played as Storm or Dazzler, but That's that is the difference between gay men and other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I just, you know, and then like, as I got more into actually reading comics and like the, and watching like the animated series and such, I was just found him very appealing as someone who was always like a larger person as sort Mm -hmm. of like a, a gentler giant. Because you're a tall, you're a tall drink of water yourself. I'm a big, I'm a big, I'm a big tallie. And, um, I've always been rather, I've not always been tall, but I've always been like a bigger person. And, uh, also I'm Russian. I don't know. It just always seemed very cool. And I think he also has this sort of like latent, in his character design, um, sort of like he's got like some Soviet aesthetics, some Soviet kitsch. Yeah. Yeah. Which were always very appealing to me. Um, even before I really knew what it was, I just always like, I mean, Soviet Russian aesthetics, I think are very cool and I'm very into them. I just found him very appealing. I like that one issue in the seventies, uh, when Arcade brainwashes him into becoming the proletarian and forces him to fight the X-Men. He becomes like a full on Red Scare Cold War bad guy for like one issue and then they're like, Colossus and he's like, Oh, I am sorry, my friends. Like I did not mean <laughs> to be an evil communist for a minute there. I'm now just a regular communist again. 
Yeah, uh, that's so funny to me because like I think so much about him that I think is interesting as a character is that he was introduced what seventy five was X Men. Yeah, seventy five. X Men one, and you know he's um, you know he's a communist guy from Siberia, but he's not like um, it's I I don't know where uh, Ween's uh, politics lie generally. He was more left, was my understanding, but I don't I don't think but I don't think he was a communist. Yeah, I mean all all. It's like all comics artists and writers from that time are either like, like soft lefties, full on communists, or like fascists. And that's yeah, it. right. No, but I think that I mean Len Wein was like a New York Jewish guy, and those yeah, guys, so, those guys yeah. tend to be more on the left. And yeah, as, as comics know. people go, but you never know. You never know. Yeah, but no, you also never know when someone's just going to like be really mad about communism in a way that is weird. Especially back then. Yeah, that's especially true. back then. I think what's so interesting about Colossus, like you know, we're, it's still uh, Brezhnev. We're still a ways off from like Perestroika. We're still right. a ways off from Glasnost. Like it's just sort of, it's still a time where the Soviet Union is considered very scary to Americans, and he mm-hmm. was not presented as scary. His no. family was not presented as scary. Like I just think it's, um, and I, you know, they they so don't really talk about it. She's like, oh, he's just some guy. He's just like it's the Soviet Union is just another country. Yeah, I mean, the most radical thing about Giant Size X-Men number one and w- when they created that new team, and this owes to editor in chief at the time, Roy Thomas, who stipulated specifically that the X- the new team of X-Men should be an international multicultural team. Yeah. So it was like Nightcrawler's from Germany, Colossus is from Russia. They wanted an African character. So Storm was, you know, yeah. they, they really wanted... And then he doesn't stay on the team, but Sunfire's Japanese. Thunderbird is there. Thunderbird is Native American and was always Bravely. was always scheduled to die, so that's not yeah. ideal. But uh, <laughs> I feel like they made up for Thunderbird with Danny Moonstar, but it took a while. Thunderbird's not great. We'll get no. to that in the Thunderbird <laughs> episode that never happens. Uh, actually, sure. we'll get to that in a Warpath episode because they Ooh. do bring in they do bring in his his little brother eventually as basically like, oops, sorry about Thunderbird. <laughs> Um, and he's still around and is a great character. So I'll probably get to him at some point. But yeah, no, I agree. I think that what's really striking about that book is the way that Storm's like traditional African religion is not presented as scary. Yeah. And then you go to Siberia to meet Colossus. I, I don't remember actually which one you meet first, but you get what I'm saying is yeah. when you meet Colossus, it's like, here we are on like a Soviet commune farm. Yeah. Here is this really nice guy who works real hard and is like a handsome young lad. And he is introduced saving his baby sister, Ileana from like a runaway tractor. He loves his family so much that he becomes a giant man of steel. Exactly. And he saves his little six year old sister. And then you, he's the only one I think who you see with his family. And like you said, they're not Mm. presented as scary. It's like his mom is like a cute babushka and they encourage him. He's always writing letters and stuff. Exactly. Like like, he has a good relationship with his family, which is, yeah, yeah. which is unusual for a superhero. Honestly, a lot of the time, Mm. particularly for an X-Man because of the mutant thing that often becomes a problem. But yeah, and they're the ones who encourage him, even though he thinks, like, shouldn't I use this power to help the community? They're like, you also have to think of yourself and do what you think is best for you. And they sort of encourage him to go with Xavier. So I agree. I think that that was really meaningful. I think that Claremont, as he did with all of the Ween and Cockrum invented characters, 
really made Colossus his own and did it by taking that core essence, which is this is the nice guy. Like mm. the strong te- the strong big guy on the team is also going to be a real sweetie. Yeah. He just underlined that. Like Piotr is an artist. That's what he really wants to be, is like a painter. Yeah, there's that there's that storyline later where he like he becomes like powerless in New York and he just becomes a successful artist. After the Siege Perilous, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's amnesiac, after the Siege Perilous, he becomes the artist Peter Nicholas and everybody <laughs> just like loves his art. And he dates Callisto, who's been turned right. into a, a supermodel by Mask. That's a fun storyline. I love rad. Callisto. But over the course of those 70s issues, it's like you get that he's the sensitive soul. He doesn't want to be violent, which is important because he has a threatening power. Uh, And he is from the country that the readership of the book would feel at the time most threatened by. But he's a really nice guy and it's almost impossible not to like him. You know what comes off as scary in Giant X-Men number one is the German people. Oh, yeah, the Come German people. Yeah. Than Soviets. yeah, no, the German people who want to kill Nightcrawler. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I will say to to Claremont's, I guess, credit, he gives them, you know, I talked about this in episode two, but he gives them a good reason to want to kill Nightcrawler. That's mm. not just that We're he German. looks that way and that they're sure. German. But um, <laughs> as I also noted in that episode, Claremont, any character that was German, Claremont was always just like, and this is their best friend or wife or confidant or mother sure. who is Jewish or Romany. So let's yeah. be clear, this character is not a Nazi. Unless they were a real Nazi, like Fenris or something yeah. like that. You know, sort of one or the other. There's definitely a certain generation of Jewish person from New York that's just sort of like... Who just is like, we gotta be real clear about what kind of Germans we're talking about here, because yeah. it's just not gonna... Like, I'm gonna know. be upset about Volkswagen ads, because they have German in them. Like, exactly. Yeah. There's like, that kind of... Which is understandable, but also like, oh, at, yeah. at this point, uh, if you're born in the 80s, like I was, it's kind of like, alright. Certainly, in 1975, it would be something where, if I'm Len Wee, and I'm like, yeah, fuck Germany. Yeah. Uh, so... I'm like fuck Germany and also fuck bare male legs apparently yes I was doing some reading you sent me what you were going to read for the dossier but I saw it before yeah Colossus's design the big dispute between Cockrum and Ween was that Cockrum was like if the point is that he turns into metal you need to see his legs and arms and Len Ween thought male superheroes with bare legs looked weird so the compromise was that when he's in human form he has these blue leggings but because the the new x-men from giant size had unstable molecule costumes designed by reed richards when he turned to steel the leggings disappeared so it didn't look bare i guess anymore because it's metal so like what's the i guess po- len was over it <laughs> we gotta give you these special pants that show off your gams but only when you're in your special metal boy form listen len ween wrote after Giant Size, Len Wein wrote two issues of the X-Men and then vanished into the night to do other things. And yeah, sure. guess, guess what? Pretty quickly, Colossus lost those leggings because they're stupid. Yeah. But um, <laughs> it's just amazing to me that like like the literal line was like, Len Wein did not like no pants on men. Men must wear pants. Men must wear pants at all times. Storm is standing there wearing almost nothing. And it's a beautiful, beautiful costume. I actually don't think it's like, you know, inappropriate or anything, but she's in a bathing suit. Mm-hmm. You're telling me Colossus can't wear a speedo? Like I, it's he's it's like he can't even wear shorts, right? Like, <laughs> like exactly, he can't even wear like little little boxing shorts or something. But also, he can wear he can wear shorts with uh, leggings that are just it looks the same as no pants, but they are blue now. 
they're blue, blue. by the way, the color of half the characters in the book. Yes, because <laughs> four-color printing means that blue is a very easy color to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Four-color printing made a lot of character design decisions at that time. Like, Jean's Phoenix costume was supposed to be white, as Dave Cockrum designed it. Oh. But that was impossible because the way that it was printed, you would just see the next page through her costume on every page. It would just look dirty. So they made it green, but like, that's why it's green. It's like, why is the Phoenix costume green? There's no good reason for that. But it was like the Marvel girl costume was green. So Cockrum was like, all right, we'll just keep her color scheme. Oh, I mean, also green is a secondary color. Yeah. Is the other And that's why in New X-Men and afterward, like after the whole genus Phoenix again, New X-Men thing, when she ascends and becomes the white Phoenix of the crown, the costume is white because that was Cockham's original design. So that's just a cool. Oh, that's very cool. Because by by that point, like printing had advanced to the point where you couldn't give super. I mean, thank God, because Emma Frost would have been in a lot of trouble. In her bright green outfit. Yeah, and she just be, it's like, I am the white queen, and she's walking around, and it's purple. I turn into green diamonds. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing I just want to say, because you're absolutely right, is that if you're a reader who likes boys, and you read this classic run, Piotr is your boyfriend. And that is why when Kitty Pride enters the book and becomes the protagonist, who's the reader self-insert, she dates Colossus. Because it's like, Of course you would want to date Colossus. He is such a sweetie. He's like a little older than her, but not so old that it's like disgust. I mean, it's not great when you look like she's 14 and he's 19, I want to say. But he's such a like naive, innocent baby that it doesn't feel like he's and she pursues him. So it doesn't feel like he's like being creepy. It's just he's like, why is Katya like looking at me in this way? (laughs) And they never have sex. So it's not like... There's that element. It's very, it's a very chaste yeah. romance. I will say, yeah, I guess as a teenager, I was also, I was just uh, remembering something else. It was like sort of um, things that were latent in me as a teenager that I didn't really uh, have much connection with until I was uh, much older was like my latent sort of like socialist tendencies and also mm-hmm. like attraction to a big beefy boy who can carry me around. And it's like, those are things I'd not consider right. when I was a teenager reading this stuff. And now it's like, oh, that's maybe that's, maybe that's why I was so into it and like there's so much about his character and like his selflessness and the way that he's willing to protect others and whatever it's like he's he is very communally minded in a good way mm-hmm. um in, in, in a way that is very admirable and like a sort of like you know like an anarcho-communist way like Piotr would be really into mutual aid right now i bet like, oh he'd yeah be hauling, he'd be hauling boxes and shit and giving away coats well honestly one of the most fun things about dawn of x is that like the mutants now are anarcho-communists Yeah. So I think that's a good moment to segue into the Cerebro character file on Colossus, who I adore. In the Betsy Braddock episode, the the first episode of the podcast, I mentioned that the two like specific homosexual awakening moments that I had reading the X-Men as like a 10 year old child or whatever, were um, a panel of Warren from the Dark Phoenix saga, and then some Brian Braddock stuff in Excalibur. And those are true in terms of like specific moments of men being scantily clad and me going like, oh my God. But (laughs) the entire time I had a crush on Colossus, like his existence was just sexual. Like his whole being, 
I didn't understand because I was like eight when my father first bought me those Marvel Masterwork card covers, like, read the X-Men, I love them. Um, but I was always You're wandering just like, outside in front of tractors waiting for some man. To yes. I'm up. like, save me. Well, no, there's that, <laughs> there's that one early on when, uh, I think it's in the first time they go to space and you find with like Dr. Corbeau and you find out that Colossus's brother, Mikhail was a cosmonaut who died in an explosion, which of course got retconned later, but that got retconned out. Well, Mikhail was alive. Oh, right. Oh, but that doesn't yes. happen until the nineties. Right. It's like he went to an alternate dimension instead of exploding or whatever because he was a mutant. But it's it's but at the, the point is, in that issue, there's a moment where he like picks up Storm like fully to hug her and like lifts her like four feet off the ground. And I was just like, yes, lift me, daddy. But I like didn't understand because I was like seven or eight. Um, anyway, <laughs> throw me into a sentinel, daddy. Yeah, like truly, yes, fastball special me, daddy. So. With that, I'm going to go into the character overview. Colossus is actually a pretty straightforward character, and I am thinking, hoping, we'll see, because I record these post-facto, but I think this will be a little bit shorter than some of the other ones have been, especially like Betsy and Emma, just because those are really complicated characters, historically speaking. Um, And then we will return here to talk about our favorite storylines featuring our boyfriend, Piotr. My boyfriend. No. My boyfriend. Okay. You know, here's the thing. Share him. <sighs> you know, that's not very socialist of you, <laughs> Matthew. <laughs> so, okay. That's, you know what? That's it. You know what? You got me. Yeah. You got me. I feel like he should be a community good, is sort of my <laughs> my feeling. Nationalized Piotr. Exactly. Everybody mm. gets a ride. With that, uh, here we go into the character file, and we'll be right back. X Men, X Men. Pyotr Nikolaevich Rasputin, often anglicized to Peter Rasputin, is the X-Man Colossus, comics' literal Man of Steel. Introduced in May 1975's Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by writer Len Wein and artist Dave Cockrum, he is part of the Second Genesis team, recruited by Professor Xavier from around the world to rescue the 60s X-Men from the living island Krakoa. Unlike his teammates Nightcrawler and Storm, who were derived in whole or in part from Cockham's rejected pitch for a DC Comics title called The Outsiders, Colossus was an entirely original creation, and the concept for the team's strong guy came to Cockrum pretty quickly. The only issue was a quibble over the costume design with Len Wein, who didn't like bare legs on male superheroes. As a compromise, Colossus's initial uniform was given blue leggings when he was in his human form, which would disappear thanks to the costume's unstable molecules when Piotr used his mutant power to transform into organic steel. Colossus first appears in the Ust-Ordinsky collective farm community in Siberia, where he lives with his parents and his six-year-old sister Ilyana, who goes unnamed in this first appearance. Piotr reveals his mutant power when Ilyana is nearly run over by a runaway tractor, transforming into metal to rescue her. Charles Xavier convinces him to leave the farm and come to the United States to train in the use of this special gift, and he becomes the most kind and gentle member of the new team of X-Men. Early in his tenure with the team, he reveals during a mission into outer space that his older brother, Mikhail Rasputin, was a famous cosmonaut killed in a space shuttle explosion. On a mission to the lost prehistoric ecosystem in Antarctica called the Savage Land, he rescues Nereal of the Fall People, and they share a ceremonial sexual encounter that is his first time with a woman. Piotr forges a close bond with his teammates Wolverine and Nightcrawler, as well as with Storm, whom he comes to regard as something of an older sister. But he continues to feel homesick for the Soviet Union and his family on the farm. 
When a number of the X-Men's loved ones are kidnapped by Miss Locke, sidekick to the supervillain Arcade, Pyotr's sister Ilyana is among them. Arcade brainwashes Colossus into becoming a stereotypical Russian supervillain called the Proletarian, and he fights the X-Men until they manage to restore his mind. Xavier telepathically grants Ilyana the power to speak English, and for her safety, Pyotr decides his sister should remain at Xavier's with him rather than return to Siberia. It turns out, unfortunately, that Ilyana faces far greater threats. In 1982's Uncanny X-Men 160, Ilyana is lured by the demon sorcerer Belasco and falls into his realm, the Hell Dimension Limbo. Time moves differently in Limbo, and by the time the X-Men are able to rescue her, Ilyana has aged seven years in Hell, now a powerful 13-year-old sorceress who has forged a weapon called the Soul Sword from her own spirit and used it to defeat Belasco and seize his throne. Now the same age as Xavier's newest student, Kitty Pride, Ilyana becomes Kitty's roommate and best friend, and begins training in the use of her own newly awakened mutant power, the ability to teleport by controlling interdimensional portals, the so-called stepping disks of Limbo. Pyotr also grows closer with Kitty, and after some shy and awkward fumbling on both their parts, they begin dating after a near-death experience battling the aliens called the Brood in 1982. In the 1984 company-wide event Secret Wars, Pyotr meets the beautiful alien Zasagi, to whom he is deeply attracted, and realizes his relationship with Kitty is immature puppy love rather than a deep romantic connection. He breaks up with Kitty, but the two remain friends. In the 1986 franchise-wide X-Men event The Mutant Massacre, Colossus and the rest of the X-Men do battle with the Marauders, a team of mass-murdering evil mutants who have slaughtered the Morlock community that lives beneath Manhattan. Injured by one of their number, Riptide, Colossus finds himself unable to revert to human form from his organic steel form. Disgusted by the Marauders and their complete inhumanity, Pyotr kills Riptide by snapping his neck, the first time he has killed another human being, something he has strived to avoid in all his missions with the X-Men thus far. Taking time away from the team for a few months of therapy, Pyotr eventually regains the ability to resume his human form, but it requires great strain to maintain it before he goes steel once again. Distraught, he meets a mysterious woman, actually the omniversal guardian Roma in disguise, who tells his fortune, informing him he has a decision to make that will affect all of humanity. Summoning Ileana, Pyotr asks her to take him to Dallas, where the X-Men are in the midst of the event Fall of the Mutants. Alongside the other X-Men, Colossus sacrifices his life so their ally Forge, a Native American mystic, can cast a spell that will defeat the cosmic being called the Adversary. Roma appears to the X-Men and resurrects them as thanks for their assistance, but their sacrifice has aired on national television, and the world now believes the X-Men to be dead. Citing the needs of the many over personal happiness, Colossus agrees with Storm and Wolverine's plan to go underground and operate without the rest of the world's knowledge. The team establishes a new base of operations in Australia, where Roma entrusts them with the Siege Perilous, a relic that will enable them, in an emergency, to enter a portal and be reborn with no memories to a new life. Despondent without his sister, Colossus is approached by the aboriginal teleporter Gateway, an ally of the X-Men, and directed to enter a portal to rescue Ilyana from a misadventure in Limbo. Though he is relieved to have saved her, and to have seen her again, Pyotr continues to allow Ilyana to believe he is dead in order to further the X-Men's plans. In Uncanny X-Men Annual 12 in 1988, on another mission in the Savage Land, Pyotr is reunited with the tribeswoman Nereel and plays with her son, named Peter, whom he never realizes is actually his own child. In the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno, Colossus and the X-Men once again battle the Marauders, including, to Pyotr's shock, the Marauder Riptide, 
who has been cloned back to life by the group's mysterious employer. The X-Men then find themselves in the crossfire of a demonic invasion of New York City, which begins to slowly corrupt them all into demons themselves. The only one immune to this corruption is Pyotr, who learns that Ileana has lost control of Limbo and sets out to find and help her. Captured by demons and delivered to Sim, Ileana's demonic rival, Pyotr is shocked to see how much Ileana has been physically corrupted by her demonic magic. He no longer recognizes the girl he once called his little snowflake. Ileana, ashamed, flees the scene and ultimately finds a way to stop the demon invasion of Manhattan by sacrificing her own life in a mystical conflagration. Pyotr discovers his sister's charred demonic armor and is utterly heartbroken. Then, all at once, he hears a tiny voice calling his name from inside the armor. When he rips the eldritch metal apart, he discovers Ileana, once again six years old, as though she'd never fallen into limbo in the first place. When the X-Men are forced to enter the Siege Perilous to escape being slaughtered by their enemies the Reavers, Pyotr is reborn amnesiac in New York City, where he takes the name Peter Nicholas and becomes a famous and celebrated artist. He begins a romance with the Morlock Callisto, who was made beautiful by her compatriot Mask, and the two are happy for a time. Eventually, Pyotr regains his memories after an incident with the evil telepath the Shadow King and rejoins the X-Men. In a 1992 adventure, he discovers that his brother Mikhail had not actually died in the space shuttle explosion all those years ago, instead being transported to an alternate dimension where he became a mutant god to the local population. This story is complicated, but let's just say Pyotr and Mikhail do not have a very happy reunion and are separated once more by the end of the adventure. Ileana, restored to childhood, had gone back to Siberia to live on the family farm again. In 1993, two years after Chris Claremont's unexpected departure from the X-Men franchise, the Russian government murders Pyotr's parents and kidnaps Ilyana, hoping to artificially evolve her so she can use her mutant powers again. Colossus and the X-Men rescue Ilyana and bring her back with them to the Xavier Mansion, where she lives for a time before she becomes the first victim of the Terminal Legacy Virus, a fatal infectious disease that affects only mutants. Reeling from the loss of his entire family, and suffering from a brain injury received in battle with the villain The Executioner, Pyotr leaves the X-Men to join Magneto and his acolytes. Though Kitty and the X-Men help him recover from the brain damage, Colossus decides to remain with the acolytes anyway, in an effort to temper their violent politics from within. He fails to make headway, however, and eventually leaves them to find a new place in the world. Seeking out Kitty Pride, the only person he feels ever truly loved him, he is aghast to discover she has begun a new relationship with one of her Excalibur teammates, the mutant spy Pete Wisdom. Pyotr and Wisdom duke it out, but in the aftermath of the fight, Pyotr calms down, accepts that Kitty has moved on, and ends up joining Excalibur himself. When their teammates Captain Britain and Megan get married and Excalibur disbands, Colossus returns to the States and to the X-Men. Shortly thereafter, Hank McCoy, the X-Men's resident scientist Beast, uses the notes of the recently deceased Dr. Moira McTaggart to finally synthesize a vaccine for the legacy virus. The vaccine requires that one mutant inject themselves, use their mutant power, and die, releasing the cure into the atmosphere to spread around the world. In March 2001's Uncanny X-Men 390, Colossus chooses to be the test subject, sacrificing his life to cure the virus in honor of his sister Ileana. His body is cremated, and Kitty scatters his ashes at the Rasputin farm in Siberia. I don't normally address alternate timelines in these character files, but in a case that's notable in assessing Colossus's publication history, in 2001, Marvel launched Ultimate X-Men by Mark Miller, a new continuity meant to be simpler for new readers. In this version of the story, Colossus is gay. That was fun. I don't really recommend Ultimate X-Men overall, though. 
Anyway, back on Earth-616, in 2004's Astonishing X-Men run by Joss Whedon, it is revealed that an alien called Ord of the Breakworld actually stole Pyotr's body before cremation, swapping it for someone else, and resurrected Colossus to experiment on his mutant body. The X-Men, including Kitty Pride, are shocked when they discover Pyotr alive, and though he's confused, he returns to the team and resumes his romantic relationship with Kitty. Their happiness is short-lived, as at the end of the Whedon run, Kitty fuses herself to a giant bullet, apparently permanently, in order to phase it through Earth and save the world. During the Whedon run, by the way, a 2006 miniseries called Colossus Bloodline by David Hine reveals that Pyotr is actually descended from the historical Grigory Rasputin. His brother Mikhail ends up exiling himself to another dimension to save Pyotr and stop their evil ancestor from resurrecting himself. This storyline is completely insane. Moving on. After the decimation leaves Pyotr as one of only about 200 mutants still empowered, he travels to the new island refuge Utopia with the other X-Men, and his sister Ilyana, who has been resurrected in limbo by Belasco and is once more an adult. At one point, Ilyana is almost given the power of the Juggernaut by the demon lord Sidorak, but Pyotr takes it instead to spare her, becoming the new Juggernaut and constantly battling the urge to cause wanton destruction. This is further compounded in the 2012 company-wide event Avengers vs. X-Men, where Pyotr and Ilyana are two of the five hosts possessed by a divided Phoenix force. Once they're freed of the Phoenix, Ilyana reveals to Peter that she had tricked him into taking Sidorak's power, hoping to teach him what damnation feels like to show him that she does not deserve his love. He is horrified, declaring her insane, though she later uses her soul sword to sever his connection with Sidorak and free him from the burden of the Juggernaut. Broken by his sister's betrayal, Pyotr joins a new iteration of the Black Ops Team X-Force, where he finds himself sexually drawn to his teammate Domino. Then, I don't know guys, some other stuff happens with the Juggernaut, and frankly, you just don't need to know about it. After the whole Inhumans vs. X-Men thing, which we are also going to skip, Pyotr and Kitty, who got better, try to coexist as friends, but ultimately can't resist getting back together. Kitty eventually proposes to Pyotr, who accepts, but on their wedding day, she gets cold feet at the last second, leaving him at the altar because their messy, fraught romantic history is not, in her view, a good foundation for a successful marriage. Devastated, Pyotr departs the team and moves back to Russia. In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman, Pyotr moves to the new sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. He attempts to rescue mutants from Russia who wish to defect to Krakoa, but is grievously injured and witnesses the deaths of many of the refugees. Traumatized, he decides to live a peaceful life as a farmer, growing Krakoan medicine, despite entreaties from his former lover Domino to join her in the newest iteration of X-Force. Surely there are more heroics in store for Pyotr Nikolaevich Rasputin, but it would be nice first and foremost to see him happy. Since the early 90s, a near-constant parade of trauma has left him by turns depressed and enraged, a far cry from the sweet and gentle, community-minded character of the classic stories. I'm inclined to think that as a character, Colossus was a product of the Cold War, and after the fall of the Soviet Union, writers just weren't sure what to do with him. But he's a character with a rich history and a good heart, and hopefully he will be back in action sometime soon. X-Men, X-Men. I'm here to destroy your show like an imp. That's fine. You're a bamf. Or a demon from a demon of limbo. Ha which brings me to, I guess, what I probably want to talk about first in terms of my favorite storylines, which is just that I have always been really attached to the relationship between Pyotr and his sister Ilyana from the very first appearance in Giant Sides where he rescues her from the tractor and she's six years old. And then 
she comes back some years later, she's kidnapped along with a couple other of like the X-Men's loved ones. And for her safety, they move her into the X-Mansion to stay with Piotr for a bit. And then she falls into hell. As one does. And comes back seven years later as a teenage demon sorceress who's been through a lot of really horrendous shit. And their relationship is really interesting. I mean, suddenly she was so much younger than him and suddenly she's only a few years younger than him. And he's really thrown because he doesn't really know her anymore, but they quickly become very close again. And whereas he is, like we've said, this very noble upstanding character she is a character who's literally been through hell and is always sort of grappling with darker impulses and is more morally flexible let's say and i think that the interplay between them is really uh is really fascinating i love them yeah they're great i think it's interesting in terms of like you know like literally the first time we see him he's saving her life and she's such like a not only so much younger but so vulnerable Yes. She doesn't even see the tractor coming. Exactly. And she's like, she pops up again and she's like, not only not vulnerable anymore, but is like actually powerful, arguably more so than he is. Correct. Right. And um, the only thing that he's got to beat in is he's got like an all time great X-Men code name. Hers is atrociously bad. Is that- well, here's, here's the thing about magic. Magic <laughs> is bad. And I'm, to me. I'm going to do a full episode on magic at some point because she is Good. when i was a kid she was one of my i mean i'm gonna do a full episode on literally everyone because i want to run this podcast for the rest of my life but um <laughs> i love magic the thing about magic is magic is an extraordinarily stupid character there is mm-hmm. almost nothing about magic that is not laughably tropey nonsense it is claremont at his most self-indulgent that said she fucking rules so i don't care and I I had an epiphany recently. I was talking to a friend of mine who's also, you know, about our age, he's a little older than us actually, um, who also loves magic, but also is like magic is the dumbest character from the X-Men, but I love magic so much. And we realized, like I have always kind of disdained X-23, who I just conceptually found to be a stupid character. I was like, oh, she's a female clone of Wolverine, but she has claws in her feet too. Like it was just so... I was like, who cares? And she came from the Evolution cartoon, which I was a little older by that point, so I didn't really watch that. Oh, I'm older than you, and I watched it. (laughs) Well, you know, we all... (laughs) To everything, there is a season. But I I just found that character to feel very much like a fanfic character, and so I was sort of like, that character's stupid. And I had this epiphany literally like six months ago. I was like, oh, X-23 is just the magic for people five or six years younger than me. Like, she is just as silly a character as magic, but if you love her, you love her. And I realized if I'm going to love magic, which I do with every fiber of my being, I have to just let these people love X-23. So I completely now absolve any X-23 stands and I apologize for any rude comments I've ever made about her goofy foot claws. Because um, (laughs) there's nothing goofier than, than when Ileana pops up and is like, a 15-year-old demon sorceress with a soul sword who is just unbelievably powerful and also, like, kind of a mischievous, scheming lesbian and 
has the teleportation power that's more powerful than anybody else's. Makes Nightcrawler look like a fucking chump. Yeah. Oh, and also every time she pops up, she's got like armor that like grows. Yeah. Cooler. She's like every time I show up, my armor gets cooler, and I can like teleport to outer space. And also, I'm the I'm the mistress of limbo, and also I know all these demons. She rules. She fucking rules, but she is a stupid <laughs> fan fiction character also. Yeah, and so sure. I just, she, but she's my stupid fan fiction character is mm. sort of how I feel about it. So like, you know, you, you guys can all just suck it. But her relationship with her brother is really what, I mean, obviously her friendship with Kitty is, is what really centers her in the, in the book as a major character. But her relationship with her brother is always really beautiful to me just because of their philosophical and moral differences. Like she's really out for herself because she's a survivor, because she fell into hell, watched all of her friends die, because the alternate X-Men from the timeline that was created when she fell into limbo die horrifically all around her, including her brother. Yeah. And terrible things are implied to have happened to her in limbo that we're not going to get into. Whereas he's sort of for the greater good of everyone. She's like, all right, but what about me? It's me time now. And I love Inferno particularly for their storyline. Because, like you said, over the course of the 80s stories, Ilyana's like, demonic armor begins to manifest over more and more of her body as sort of this signifier that she's becoming more corrupted by the dark magic that she wields. And Inferno happens a year after Fall of the Mutants, and she believes that Peter is dead. Yeah. And she also blames herself because she teleported him to Dallas to help the X-Men in Fall of the Mutants. So, and then he dies, apparently. Yeah, well, he loves he loves to do that, though. Yeah, well, he loves to sacrifice himself. That's his, his whole... He loves to, his he loves whole to deal. die. <laughs> that for the good of mankind, yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Well, as opposed to, like, as Daniel Kibblesmith pointed out about Nightcrawler, Nightcrawler sometimes is like, if you bully me bad enough, I might just let you kill me. Whereas with Colossus, it's like, I will make the grand sacrifice for all people. Yeah. Except he's not really, he's not grandstanding, because generally he's right. No, he and he means it. Like, it's completely genuine. Yeah, me and my eight friends will die so you can cast a spell. I will take right. the, va- I'll, you kill me so you can make the vaccine. Correct. Exactly. And that, we'll get to that in a second, because I think that really defines the character. Mm-hmm is that moment in 2000 but what i love in inferno is when they cross paths again in inferno he doesn't recognize her at first because she has become so demonic in nature and he is just like my snowflake what has become of you and it's just really fucking sad and that is the end of magic's arc at least as claremont intended it because at the end of inferno she sacrifices herself to stop what's going on and he's cradling her charred armor. Yeah. And he thinks she's dead, and he's, like, really lost it. And then from inside the armor, he hears, Pyotr Nikolaevich, like, in this tiny little girl voice, and he tears it open, and she's inside the way she was when she fell into limbo. And they hug, and it is like, I was way too young when I read Inferno, because my mom just let me, like, <laughs> buy a TPV of, like, X-Men from Borders, may it rest in peace. And my dad, who had, of course, read Inferno when it was being published, was like, your mother let you buy that? Um, <laughs> but I, I was already like halfway through it. So he was like, all right. There's some shit in there. Yeah. Yeah. Because Inferno's dark shit. But I cried, I think, when I read that page. I mean, it really is just a beautiful moment where they get the, the sort of happy ending that they 
never thought they would have. And Ileana gets her childhood back and, and all of that. And then, of course, Claremont got fired from the book and they kill off Ileana in the Legacy Virus storyline. So that's um, God, pretty, pretty brutal. I think that speaks to what I like about him as a character in terms of like the X-Men as like a, an ensemble book, right? Um, we're like, you, you talked about this in a previous episode, but it's right. Like, I don't think I'm not a fan so much of like the individual X-Men titles when I've read them. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's here and there, like a one-off thing that is good, you know, like your old man Logan's or whatever the hell. Yeah. There'll be mini series that will be good, but yeah. I'm, I'm much more of a, they're a team and I want to yeah. read a team book. And I, I think as a team dynamic, having a guy like Piotr around, who's not like the most fascinating character in terms of like his psychology or whatever, but I think he's an interesting character to have around in terms of so much of the X-Men. They're all so broken, right? Yeah. And he's, uh, he's not, he's not like a big, he's not like, Oh, stay posy guys. But he's very much like grounding and like this thing at the end of Inferno, like does want to make the people around him or the people around him are inspired to be better or stronger or, more like him in his selflessness, I think is what it's yeah. interesting. And it's, I think it's important for the dynamic of the team, uh, especially when you get into the nineties where everybody's very like, uh, if you're like a team of all gambits, you know? Yeah. Kind of. It's like all gambits and all like canon Psylocke's like they all <laughs> yeah, just exactly. kind of become that and cable. Like it all becomes that vibe. Exactly. And I think that fall of the mutants is also a great example of that because he violates fate to go there and specifically sacrifice himself which wasn't supposed to happen but that means that there is enough people to make the spell happen you know what i mean yeah he's just a great character but but yeah so the legacy virus storyline this is where honestly i think a lot of people fell off the x-men in the 90s was the legacy virus storyline because as my father put it because that's really when he he kept reading until about 96 but he really kind of fell off and he had been reading since 1963 he was just like i just had friends die in the aids crisis i don't want to like read the sci-fi aids crisis like three years later it just didn't feel fun yeah it's that bad kind of sci-fi where it's like a straight one-to-one yeah and it's so heavy-handed i was explaining it to my mother literally the other day because i was telling her about my podcast which she will never listen to but she's very supportive and um i was just and my dad and i were being we're like nerding out about the x-men and she was sort of rolling her eyes uh i live with my parents at the moment it's fine i'm 32 and i am um, making my own choices we love you and support you connor they do and i i said i said we do oh well okay thank you i appreciate that um um, it's been no 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 sarcasm. i do no i do i'm not being sarcastic I'm not. Very... no no not. i am just no it's just like being a 32 year old who lives with your parents does not feel enormously chic but i got priced out of my apartment and i am saving money and it's a good time because uh, i like them thankfully which is not always the case it's fine times are hard man it's fine but yeah my dad was like well, and then they did the legacy virus, so I fell straight off. I'm like, you're going to kill the little girl after the whole storyline to get the little girl back? He's like, why am I reading this? And my mother was like, what's that? I'm like, and they basically, like, it was AIDS, but, like, only mutants could get it. And she was like, oh, for God's sake. So, like, my mother, who has no context, was, her only other thing was, like, my father identifies a lot with Cyclops in the classic run, and he and my mother have a very sort of Scott and Jean dynamic in the sense that my mother is a powerful cosmic being and my father is mostly excited (laughs) to uh, clap for her that's nice and we were explaining that to her and she was like 
but doesn't she die at the end? That's not flattering. And I was like, okay, but this is a version where that doesn't happen, I guess, mom. We were trying to say something nice. Never mind. So all that to say, the legacy virus is one of my least favorite storylines. But I do think the issue where Ileana dies that sort of kicks it off is a very good issue. It's sort of like Jubilee focused. And she's just like sort of been this bratty kind of happy-go-lucky character and then she just like watches as this seven-year-old girl like suffers and dies and they can't do anything to stop it and it, it really kind of breaks her in a way that led to interesting character development for jubilee yeah she started out as a real uh, sort of poochie i would say yeah, for yeah, like 1990 I mean... or whatever she was a real sort of like, we need a rad mall team to wear a raincoat and shoot fireworks. Well, the thing was, Kitty had matured too much as a character and they shipped yeah. her off to Excalibur. So the X-Men needed, Wolverine needed a new sidekick, essentially. And I do think that it was interesting to then be like, because Kitty's a Jewish girl from Deerfield and is very much like the Marvel Comics target reader in 1980 when the you know book comes out. Yeah. And I think that, when Claremont invented Jubilee, it was like, okay, she's Chinese American. She was on the streets for a while. She's more streetwise. It was an attempt, I think, to... Because Kitty was a pretty revolutionary character at the time. Yeah, I guess it's the same thing as your Magic X-23 thing, where it's just like, oh, to exactly. me, like, Kitty Pride was just a thing that existed when I started reading comics. Kitty is also Poochie when she comes in. For sure. And Kitty also, like, becomes an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. and a samurai and, uh, like... She literally is, like, a Disney sidekick the whole yeah. time. Like, yeah. I do think that what kind of X-Men fan you are, I, I think it often is tied to who the class of students were when you started reading. Like, my dad is just really primordially tied to Scott and Jean because he was reading from the beginning. Yeah. For me, I really like the original class of the New Mutants, like Ileana and Danny and Rain and those characters. And I think that for a lot of people, it's like Gen X and people were so excited that like some of those characters have finally, I mean, Monet has really blossomed, but for a while, the others were kind of shunted off to the side and now they're all kind of back. And I do think that similarly, you're either kind of a kitty person or a Jubilee person. And a lot of that depends on when you started. And it's interesting because it was Kitty and then Jubilee and then Kitty again, right? Because after evolution, they brought Kitty back. Yeah. in a big way and Whedon kind of just wrote her like she was 14 again so <clears throat> which we you know in any case um <laughs> the thing that is going to get this podcast like canceled is that I hate Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men and it is one of the most popular runs of the X-Men and every episode I'm going to find some way by accident to just bring up how much I don't enjoy that run at all. I'm here with you, baby. I don't like it very much. Yeah, so we'll get there. But to finish, I guess, my thought on Peter and Ileana, of all the character deaths in the X-Men, like, obviously you have Jean in the Dark Phoenix Saga is an extremely moving moment. Similarly, I think that Colossus deciding, when, it's, when, when they come up with the cure for the legacy virus, it's like Moira and Beast and everybody else who's smart have been working on this for the entire 90s. Yeah, I didn't realize how long that storyline ran for. It goes on for fucking ever. Nine, like eight years or something. And a lot of really cool characters die. It sucks. Like, they gave it to a lot of fun. Like, I was saying this in the Betsy episode. I mean, that's how they got rid of Revanche, was they just were like, yeah. she gets the legacy virus because this is too confusing. And, you know, I'm really glad that Betsy and Kanon are both 
back because they were both interesting characters when they were in the 90s together. You know, but I, like, they kill off Pyro, they kill, there's just a lot of characters who are fun who they just kill off. I mean, Moira McTaggart being probably the ultimate example of a character who just, because she's, of course, and now after House of X, this is a different thing. But at the time, she was the only human who got it because she was the stand-in for the frontline AIDS crisis doctors who became infected because they were working so hard with pitch. It's a bad storyline. It's the worst kind of sci-fi where they're just like... It's just so literal. They just graft everything on. It's like when you yeah. read a sci-fi and they're like racist against elves. It's like, leave me alone. I get it. Like, yes, I'm aware. And the X-Men, when it's not written well, can become that because yeah. it is very easy for like the mutant minority metaphor to be heavy handed. But I think that under good writers who are conscious of the fact that like real world minorities can't shoot beams of concussive force out of their eyes or, Mm -hmm. you know, turn into organic steel. And so it's, you have to make it layered. That's good. But just mutant AIDS was not good. But anyway, once they have the solution, it turns out the solution is a mutant has to inject this vaccine into themselves and die, which will release it into the atmosphere and cure this virus. But who could we possibly ask to do such a thing? So they're like dithering about it. And while they're dithering, Colossus just walks in and is like, you know, this is for my sister and just does it. What a gent. It rules. It really rules. He kicks ass. That's why when Grant Morrison, like a year later, was like, so I want to use Colossus. And they were like, oh, he's dead. And it was one of those ones where, you know, usually X-Men characters, that doesn't last for long, which is why Jonathan Hickman has now really literalized that on Krakoa, where they can just resurrect like Cylons. It's brilliant because it's just a nod to the fans that X-Men don't ever stay dead. But in that case, it was like, (laughs) no, we really, we just did this storyline and he really ought to stay dead for a minute. Because it was meaningful. It's like, we know this is the X-Men and nothing makes sense ever for more than a couple of pages. The emotional resonance of that would get pretty lost if you brought him back like three months later in New X-Men. So it was probably good that they didn't. And that's also how we got Diamond Emma, which was a pretty good innovation. So it all worked out. But then Whedon brings him back so that Peter and Kitty can finally fuck. That's really just what it is. Yeah. Awesome. Remember how they never actually had sex because she was 14? Well, now she's grown and sexy and they can just bang it out. But consider, what if Joss Whedon had brought him back so him and Wolverine could fuck? Well... How, how much of a different conversation would we be having right now? If we were having that conversation, Joss Whedon would be a very different man. That's is what uh, I'll say. Listen, yes. <laughs> but it's worth mentioning that when Ultimate X-Men, which I wasn't crazy about generally, but had some, had some great moments in it, when Ultimate X-Men was like, in our version, Colossus is gay, that was a game changer for X-Men comics and for me as a sexual being aged 13. You know, it's just one of those things where I really wish they would have just brought that to 616. Like, yeah, cause... or just make him make them buy well here's the thing now that we're on krakoa and everybody's pretty by just have colossus blow ice man's back out just do it just do just, it just do it just do it there was a moment like somewhat recently where colossus i think this was after kitty left him at the altar he was like all depressed and he like grew a beard and it was so sexy because when he turned into metal it was just like yes it was truly like fastball special me daddy <laughs> 
If you're not familiar with the fastball special, I'm just realizing we're referencing this thing because we're nerds. Who doesn't? That's what everybody knows. It's like the main thing people know about Colossus. But a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are new to the X-Men, and I'm trying oh. to like be... So the fastball special is this thing that's introduced Welcome. in the 70s run where Wolverine, because the thing about Wolverine that you may not know, because if you just watched the movies, Hugh Jackman is like six feet tall. In the comics, Wolverine is like 5'4". He's this tiny little guy who's just like a little bundle of anger and muscle and hair. And Colossus, who's like 6'5". He grows to he grows to like seven foot something when he's meddled up. Yeah. Canonically. He's humongous. But he's 6'5 when he's not meddled up. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. like he's like a Lee Pace army hammer kind of height going on. Sorry, I needed a second to just Shit, contemplate. Lee Pace in a movie playing Colossus, please? I was about to say, can Lee Pace do a Russian accent? Because I would be real in on that. As someone who has uh, seen Lee Pace naked last year in Angels in America, I I I would like Lee Pace to be in the Colossus, please. I really had to weigh whether I was willing to sit and sob through Angels in America in order to see Lee Pace's dick, and I ultimately didn't do it because that's Uh, a long play, and I am a break for dinner. A wuss? Um, and I, like, I just know that Angels in America is not something I can sit through without sobbing, but I wish that someone had, um, recorded that performance for, like, great performances on PBS or something. It was really good, and I, uh, I sobbed during the Mourner's Cottage, like a fucking mark. Yeah, well, you know, there's nothing a queer Jew likes more than the Mourner's Cottage in Angels in America. That's pretty much like, <laughs> you can't really, you can't really get more, oh, uh, more potent than that in terms of i was like whispering it under my breath and sobbing apparently i don't even remember this Anyways. yeah well i'm just picturing jaya mouthing like are you okay like, yeah, like and, yeah. and she's completely fine yeah anyways but anyway i digress so this fast special is that colossus would just throw wolverine at people he would just pick him up and like swing around in a circle and then just like fling wolverine's tiny body claws extended at magneto or whoever and it's hilarious and was like a truly iconic and has remained a pretty iconic even though after Hugh Jackman played him they've like slowly made Wolverine taller but they'll still do it because Colossus is big enough I mean Colossus could throw pretty much anybody so I'll say I I have a question on Krakoa hit me you're talking about it being you know like a big pansexual love fest out there and you said that he was, you know, give, let him blow Iceman's back out. And my question for you is, do you really think that he would be a top? No, I don't. But I... Um, it's just a thought. No, I think Colossus would be a muscle power bottom. But here's the thing. I feel it's like... It's a funnier phrase, and I appreciate that. I just feel like if I'm going to pitch to Marvel that they let Colossus fuck dudes, it's like another step for me to be like let dudes fuck Colossus. So I'm trying to do kind of baby steps here. Wolverine gets a step stool. Yeah, he gets up on like an ottoman or something. A little, you know, he's just like (laughs) you know, no, I actually um, I was thinking about, because why not? Why wouldn't you think about it? And I was like, which character would I like to randomly hook up with Colossus on Krakoa, who's a man? And then I was thinking like well, who does he have history with? Who's from, from the giant size team, right? And so, like, the obvious choices would be Wolverine or Nightcrawler, because those three are, like, yeah. total bros. But then I was like, you know who hasn't gotten laid in a long time? Banshee. Oh. And after he was dead for, like, 15 years, he's probably the same age as Colossus now. So... 
That's not bad. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. That'd be hot. He's like, I feel like you cast like Kevin McKidd. Mm-hmm. I feel like Kevin McKidd tops Lee Pace is a movie I would watch. Instead of the, the creepy brother from Get Out like they had in the first class movies. Yeah, that was not, that was not great. In general, first class, well, obviously the casting for Charles and Eric is very, very good in first very class. Good. Although I would like if Kevin Feige is listening, please, for the love of God, cast a Jewish actor as Magneto and a Jewish actress as Kitty Pride. I am begging you. It has never happened. And you have cast those characters like you, not you. It was Fox, but Several actors have now played both those characters, and none of the actors have been Jewish. And I understand that white Jews are white, but we're also this other thing, kind of, and it's complicated. And I just think when it's important that the character is Jewish, like Iceman, you can cast a Gentile. I won't be mad about it. It's not a super important part of his character. Magneto, the like literal Holocaust survivor separatist, like Menachem Begin. <laughs> Mark Haney, like, character. I'm sorry, like, you need to cast a Jew. Kitty Pride, you need to cast a Jew. I'm sorry, I just feel strongly about this. Like, no disrespect to Ellen Page. She was perfectly good. But, like, get me a... She's too old for the part, but get me, like, a Jenny Slate type. Ooh. To play Kitty. You know what I mean? Get, get uh, yeah. I, I, um, I like how I've heard, like, oh, Magneto's like an Austrian Jew. And he's like, Austrian? <laughs> I can get one of those. <laughs> right, no, I mean, and listen... <laughs> Fassbender is great. I thought he was great role. in those movies, honestly. So I'm not, I'm not mad about that casting. It's just like, could you please cast a Jew? The worst also was then when the Marvel Cinematic Universe did Wanda and Pietro, which like, let's not even get into the mess there because oh, they're not God. even Magneto's kids anymore, right? In the comics. Not even mutants. Not even mutants, right? The Pretender, the Pretender, the Scarlet Witch, the Pretender. Hickman's doing fun stuff with it, at least, because yeah. like, if, you, if you're stuck with this retcon, you might as well do fun stuff with it. But as created, well, not as created, because their parentage was a retcon also, but as sort of presented for a very long time, they were these half-Jewish, half-Romany characters, and then had them be Hydra agents when the movie starts. And I was just like, I hate this. But again, it's like Elizabeth Olsen is good in that part. So I'm not upset about that necessarily, but it's just kind of like, she doesn't look a goddamn thing like Wanda Maximoff. So it's just, I don't know. And cast Lee Pace as fucking Colossus. I can't get over this. That's all I'm thinking about now (laughs) for the rest of the night. I mean, my thing is just, obviously there are plenty of Jewish actors who get roles that um, are not Jewish. So it's, it's a little different from like, whitewashing of poc roles obviously but i do think that jews who quote unquote look jewish uh don't get cast very much in anything i mean unless they get busy playing greeks which is right yeah Yeah, oded fair's entire career and oded fair isn't even mizrahi sashkenazi but oded fair's entire career because he's dark like my grandfather has been Mm -hmm. playing arabs in everything except like one time he got to play a Mossad agent or whatever. Cool! Yeah, great. Anyway, the the point is... <laughs> Sorry. The other thing I really enjoy about that, uh, to go back, between Ileana dying of the legacy virus and Colossus killing himself to cure the legacy virus, you have the whole, because Ileana died, I no longer believe in any of this shit moment where he becomes one of Magneto's acolytes in the another, 90s another thing i love as i was telling you before a big old proponent before we of, recorded yeah as a as a big uh, member of the third magneto international 
personally. I have the the new X-Men Mag- red Magneto was right t-shirt. And there are lots of knockoffs, but I like found the one that is the same design from the actual new X-Men issue. And I wear that shit all the time. That's very good. Even though in New X-Men, Grant Morrison is using that to make fun of like millennials wearing Che Guevara shirts. Yeah. But he's doing it in a, in, you know, a loving way. But che Guevara was also right. So that's, I don't know, <laughs> Grant. But just the idea that you turn these revolutionaries into yeah, yeah. signifiers for fashion. I will say in the period of Magneto that we're talking about, it was after he was good in the 80s, and then they sort of reset him in the 90s to be bad again. And then Colossus is like, well, I'm joining Magneto because fuck you guys, you couldn't save my sister. But he spends the whole time being like, I shall be the conscience of the acolytes. And it just doesn't really... Well, he's like, I'm going to work from the inside. Yeah, and it's like, I'm sorry, Fabian Cortez and Joanna Cargill and Carmela Unicione... Those are the ones I remember because those are the coolest ones. But all those other people, they're not interested in like listening to Colossus about being nice sure. to people. That's that's like not really their bag. So it doesn't last that long, obviously, mm. but it's a cool idea because he was the sweet one, the kind one. I mean, he was so non-threatening. I love in the Australian period when there's this panel, I always remember where Betsy is posing nude for him for a painting. And Betsy is before she gets put in Kanon's body and is like, well, now I'm super hot, so I'll wear a thong all the time, is more self-conscious sort of about her body and, and covers up a lot more uh, in the 80s. In, in the Australian period, she's wearing full body armor all the time. Yeah. And I love that panel because she's, I mean, she she's pulled a sheet sort of up over her breasts, but she's posed nude for him. You sort of see her back and he's painting her. And he's like, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for posing for me. And she's like, of course, Peter, like as long as I receive the portrait when it's finished, because I'd like to hang it. But she can feel vulnerable with him. And there is no like sexual energy in the scene. There's no threat of any like masculine weirdness. He's just a sweetie. So to watch him so traumatized by watching his little sister die that he's like, I am a terrorist now is like, oh, wow. And so I thought that was an interesting character beat. And then they pivot him from that into the later run of Excalibur, where he's like, well, the only person who's ever really loved me is Kitty. So I'm going to go be with Kitty. And then he finds Kitty and she has a new boyfriend, which he's like not thrilled about. And then he, I don't know, I, I think that they didn't quite know what to do with him again. And that's partially, I think, why they killed him off. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. Also, like I remember, I mean, this is uh, my rec- my recollection of the evolution animated series is that mm-hmm. he doesn't show up until the end of the show, and he's a villain. Yeah, he's like he's like he's he's like with the acolytes again, and then it's like I hit all of his usage in like modern after he dies, I guess, like all that all of his usage after that has been like sort of like this mindless non actual version of him. Where I feel like they're just sort of like, we don't, it's just like a big guy made of metal. We don't know what that is. He's in like Deadpool. He's in the Deadpool movies and they, it's completely fucked how they use him. Like, I mean, those movies, those movies are an onslaught to the, to the human mind. But like, I, I will say I like the Fox X-Men franchise was so yeah. not the X-Men as I love them that the Deadpool movie, by the mere fact that 
Deadpool and Colossus are in it and look like Deadpool and Colossus. Yeah, that, that movie at least is trying to be fun on some level. It's trying to be fun, and it was. I was like, oh my god, look, there it is. And you can like point at the screen, and it's the X-Men. Like, that's fun. So, but yes, I would agree that he's not really in character. No, he's like, he's just like a you know, like a big thug, basically. It's very strange. Well, it feels based on the ultimate characterization, actually, because in Ultimate X-Men, he's a Russian-American and is in the Mafia. The Mafia? Isn't that how you pronounce the Russian Mafia with a Y? Oh, I don't know. I think so. Why are you asking me? I only know the Russian Mafia from the Sopranos episode where Janice steals Svetlana's leg. So, like, I'm not an expert on the Russian Mafia at all. So I could be completely wrong here. That is an iconic episode of the Sopranos. Janice Soprano is the queen uh, uh, of prestige television. (laughs) I love Janice so much. Love Janice. We could do a whole Janice episode. I would, That's can, I, can I come back on for like a bonus episode where we just talk about Janice? I was just going to say someday when I like set up a bonus episode situation of some kind where we just talk about people who are not X-Men, you'll just come on and we'll talk about Janice. Oh my God. So to go back, <laughs> I have always, yeah, sort of felt that since he came back in the Whedon run, no one has really known what to do with him. And I feel like that's even true in Dawn of X. I will say the one Dawn of X book I am not caught up on is X-Force um, because it is, honestly, just X-Force has never been my bag. Like, I get why people like it. I get why the Rick Remender Uncanny X-Force is popular. I just, I've never been into sort of edgelordy stuff. It's just not my yeah, comic vibe. Never, that was never my thing either. It was like... Uh... Yeah, that sort of like that co- that sort of mode of Marvel comic was never really my bag. The only kind of book like that that I've ever really enjoyed is the original John Ostrander Suicide Squad at DC. Mm. And actually in the new Dawn of X, like Hellions is basically the Marvel version of that book and Hellions is amazing. So I don't mind. It's not that I mind violence or that I mind like characters who are bad people or whatever. And the current experts team actually has a lot of characters on it. I think are interesting. I cannot, I can't take Quentin Quire as a hero. That's something that happened like post Morrison that really bugs me. Cause in Morrison, he was such like a disgusting incel. But other than that, like Tessa is in that book and I love Tessa and like Cecilia Reyes shows up and you know, there's lots of fun characters in that book. I just did not caught up on it. And, and, and Domino who's always fun. It's just so like, over-the-top, violent, you know, splatterpunk kind of superhero book, and that's just never really been my thing, so I will catch up on it. He was in an issue of that early on, so it's possible that they've done all kinds of things with him now in, like, the four or five issues of X-Force I haven't read yet, but even in Dawn of X, my general feeling has been that they haven't done a lot with him, unlike Ilyana, who is a major character right now, because they brought her back eventually... Uh, in 2008. I think it's the problem of, I think it's a lot of the time where, you know, a lot of people look at a character that is sort of like stoic or like a sweetheart, like, like Piotr is. And it's sort of, it's so easy to, 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 in a reductive way, see it as like, he's boring. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe I think that might be what's going on with a lot of writers. They just don't know what to do with him because it's just like, Oh, what to do with this guy? It's almost like trying to figure out what like a new Superman story is. Right. You see the right kind of writer. There's an idea. There's like a conception that characters like that are not interesting, which is it's mm-hmm. it's it's actually a lot like the Captain America thing. Yeah, people were very skeptical that a Captain America movie franchise was going to work because Captain America is so earnest yeah. um, and is not actually really a jingoistic character. He represents America as 
it should be, not as it is. And whenever America is doing real fucked up shit, Captain America, like, quits. That happens, like, seven times. Yeah. But I'm not an Avengers expert, so I, I'm always cautious about, like, referencing Avengers stuff, because it was never my bag. The only Avengers I really, truly love are uh, Monica Rambeau and mantis who like talk about like problematic sort of orientalist characters so like i look back on yeah. that and i'm like mm, not great never mind sorry i was 12 but you know she was fun she didn't didn't give a fuck and she was like always karate chopping dudes and it was cool and monica rambo is just freaking awesome but the only superhero books i ever read were x-men books that was like the only superheroes i thought were interesting like i ne- I didn't read any other superhero books i read some of the spider-man stuff in the 90s like maximum carnage and that stuff but i just never really got into anything that wasn't the x-men until house of m happened and then the decimation i was really i say this in every episode so i'm sorry if you're like a loyal listener who has now heard me make this complaint several times but um when the decimation reduced the mutant population to like 200 people i got really bored because to me the the minority subculture aspect is the most interesting part of the x-men so i fell off for a while and then then I, I sort of dabbled in DC for the first time. And I really fell in love with Renee Montoya, who's one of my favorite comic characters. And then they rebooted the New 52 thing and got rid of Renee Montoya. So I was like, all right, well, I'm out. Never mind. <laughs> She's back now is my understanding. But like, you know, you lost me. But yeah, I, I just think that the problem also is I think that he became so secondary. And I really do think Whedon did this he became so secondary to Kitty's character as just sort of like Kitty finally gets to have sex with the high school boyfriend. And like, now they're a couple and it's, and he's alive. Isn't that great? And I'm just kind of like, okay. And there's that really gross scene where the first time they have sex, she comes so hard that she like phases naked through the floor and falls into the living room. Do you remember that? Oh my God. I remember that so vividly. That's disgusting. That was fucking weird, dude. I think it would it would be cool if Joss Whedon ever met a woman would be helpful for him, I think. No, unfortunately, I think Joss Whedon has met too many women. That's a really good, that's a better point. Who were a lot younger than him. And I'm making, I'm making a big face at that one. Allegedly, allegedly. Allegedly by his ex-wife in an open letter that you can Google. But <laughs> my point is, um, I... <laughs> I do think that once he was sort of sublimated to Kitty's story fully, they didn't know what to do with him, especially once the writers were sort of like, this relationship's kind of boring and a dead end, so we gotta kind of get Kitty out of it. And so where does that leave him? I don't know, like he was fucking Domino for a while. That seemed fun. That's cool. Yeah, they're hot. Enjoy, I guess. And Domino is into guys with metal arms, so that... That's true. I guess that's a thing for her. That's a really specific thing for her, huh? It just occurred to me. But you know what? Like, she clearly is into the feeling of a big metal bicep. That's got to be just like a, a specific domino-centric kink. I we're both like, we're both like, this is so weird, despite spending the last two hours being like, I want... Being like, I want Colossus to, like, break me in half, right? No, I know. <laughs> and I am not even the kind of person who likes... Oh, my God, my dad listens to this podcast. Uh, Shout out to Connor's dad. We're just talking about regular stuff. I would rather break Colossus in half. That's more my my style, but... Well, that, we've established that's canon anyway, so we're, it's fine. Well, yeah, no, that's part of yeah. why I would I would like to see it. 
Um, but um, I digress. Thank you also to straight people who listen to this podcast. I appreciate I appreciate you so much. I don't um, talk to that many straight people in my regular day to day life, so I apologize if this podcast is just sometimes overwhelmingly inaccessible to you in places. But you know what? That's how we feel all the fucking time. So deal with it. But no, thank you for thank you for listening to my Colossus sexual fantasies, especially if you are my father, James Goldsmith, a six year old heterosexual man who listens to this podcast when he runs on the elliptical, which is extremely cute. Remember that time that they decided Colossus was a literal Rasputin, like descended from I... Rasputin, Rasputin? Because that's fucking funny. Like talk about not knowing what to do with this character. Yeah, I fell off. I fell off reading X Men for a long time. Um, and then I was, I was doing some reading today in advance of this and I saw just a little side note somewhere. It's like, oh yeah, it was, uh, it was established in like 2001 that he is an actual descendant of Gregory Rasputin. And I was, I believe you texted me in block caps. <laughs> they made him an actual Rasputin. Like, I'm sorry. Fucking what? What? Did he, did Rasputin have children? Well, he fucked a lot, so probably. I actually don't know. I'm not a I'm not a Grigory Rasputin expert. I feel like the most I know about Grigory Rasputin is like the cartoon evil version of him from Anastasia, the DreamWorks movies. So I'm not actually hugely up on. I just I know that he had a famously big penis and that he was very hard to kill and that he fucked a lot of Russian noble women. That's basically the extent of my knowledge. I will say I like the idea that they're descended from the actual Rasputin for Ilyana. I think that's really fun. Yeah, but also you can't start with their names being Rasputin and then have that. Right. It's like... It would be like if it turned out, if like instead of the Draco, it was like Kurt Wagner's father is Wagner, the composer of the Nibelungen. Like, you know, like it was, it's very like... Your real name is Ring Cycle Wagner. And it's like, that's not... Yeah, like it's like, let's not, right? I mean, I, I... That's just funny. Like, uh, here's the thing. That was a moment in time where a lot of stupid retcon stories happened in the sort of the the early to mid aughts. And at least that one's really funny and has no particular consequences because who cares, right? Like you don't ever have to mention that again, but it is just a fun fact. That's true. I think it's, it tickles me. I enjoy it because it's so goofy. It is preposterous, Sue, but it's definitely one of those things that like I would cite as like a person that's like, oh, maybe they should just introduce more characters more often instead of just using the same people over and over and over and over and over because you end up having to make people ask actual Rasputins to spice things up. Right. <laughs> the problem is that, and this is a problem that you see a lot in DC where they do legacy heroes more often. But the Marvel version of that is the classes of X-Men students of of Xavier students, because it's sort of like in every generation of Xavier's class, there's like three or four characters max who actually break out. So like from the original new mutants, it's like Danny Moonstar, Cannonball, Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Magic. That's a particularly successful one where like you have several characters. I mean, magic got taken off the board pretty quickly, actually, because in Inferno and all that. But now in the modern age, she's been back for a while and she's now a pretty prominent X-Men character. And then in Gen X, it's like Jubilee already existed and was popular. That was the anchor of that book. And then Monet really is the breakout from that class. Yeah. And then in the generation after that, it's like X-23, Armor, and a couple other characters. But for the most part, most of those characters just don't stick. So it's tricky to introduce new people. I think that 
the most successful new characters tend to be reinvented versions of characters that already existed. Like Emma is the best example. It's like Grant Morrison completely reconfiguring Emma Frost into essentially a new character, but one that made sense. Yeah. And then she becomes like this huge starring character. It is difficult to think of an X-Men character introduced after, I would say, like 2005 that has really, really stuck. Oh, you don't like the guy with the the slugs? The slug stomach man? His name is Japheth and his codename is Maggot. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) You don't think he's sticking? He didn't really stick, but he's before, he's even before the cutoff I'm talking about. Is he really? He, in my mind. Yeah, he's, he's like from the 90s. Oh, I feel like in my mind, it's like he, they introduced him last year, but maybe I'm just a thousand years old. He's late 90s. It's like him and the only character from that era who's ever stuck around at all is Cecilia Reyes. And yeah. she has only stuck around in the sense of like, because Cecilia's whole thing is that she does not want to be a superhero. Like she just wants to be a doctor. She's like, please. It's like, I'm a doctor, Jim, not an X-Man. Like that's her whole deal. <laughs> So she mostly pops up to be useful in a medical situation. But the other, like, late 90s, early aughts introductions, outside of, like, another example, Sage, except that Sage is Tessa, who's a character that had existed since the 80s. So it's like, Claremont was just like, she's been a spy for Xavier the whole time, and she has a cool, like, technopathy power. And we were like, okay, fine. Yeah. You know, but it's hard to break in a totally new character and be like, this character is going to stand the test of time. And in part, I think that's because the way the X-Men don't really age, it's sort of conspicuous in the new Krakoa run that like the original New Mutants and the kids from Generation X and Kitty Pride are now clearly all exactly the same age. Like they're all roughly 25 to 28, yeah. I would say. If you're looking for like really rock solid logic, I would not read an X-Men book is what I would say to that, I guess. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, no, I'm not saying I'm not complaining that it's illogical. I'm just saying that that then forces competition between all of those characters to be the ones that get attention. So like, and Monet won, like Monet just fucking won. And it's because she's awesome. But, you know, if you're a Gen X character, you're just looking around, you're like, man, Monet sure gets to do a lot of stuff, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Guess I'll just. What's Husk get to do? Not much. You know what I mean. Well, if you if you if you're bored, walk over to Colossus's hut and get your fucking back blown out. Yeah, I guess. I mean, Husk famously did get her back blown out in the sky by Warren Worthington the Third in Chuck Austin's She Lies with Angels, uh, one of the worst Ooh. Chuck Austin storylines, and somehow one that I have not mentioned on the podcast yet because there are so many bad Chuck Austin storylines <laughs> that we hadn't even gotten. To her mom like is watching it and is like that's my girl like getting fucked by a billionaire in the sky i mean she doesn't say that but it's it's the most insane it's one of the most insane things that i have ever read in a comic book i mean listen if i if i if i was ever a parent and i saw my child getting fucking destroyed in the sky by a flying billionaire by warren worthington the third i would be very proud myself yeah i'd be like that's my girl but i would not watch i mean well it's really far up in the air right if it's my child, they're not that far up in the... I, it's a bad... That's a bad story. Um, so why don't we pivot to what <laughs> you think... 
we've <laughs> talked about how Colossus has, in my opinion, and, and, and in your opinion, been a little directionless since his return from the grave in Astonishing. He was the juggernaut for a minute, which was weird. And then he was... He was the juggernaut and then tried to die for humanity again for a third time. Yeah, and then he was one of the Phoenix Five, but he was like the least corrupted Phoenix Five because he's Colossus. Like even raw cosmic power isn't going to like make Colossus evil. He's just not that guy. The only thing that ever made him even kind of evil was like watching his six-year-old sister die of AIDS. Which, like, you know what? That would probably send me a little round the bend for a few years myself. So what do you, what would you do with the character? Like, what do you think would be a fun direction to take him? What would be your sort of ideal storyline for him, do you think? I mean, I think something where, A, let him be a bisexual in peace. Sure. Uh, Aside from that, because every episode of this podcast is going to feature a portion where we go, also, this character should be bisexual, probably. But yeah. Outside of our deep and abiding need for 616 classes to have sex with men, mm-hmm. what else? Yeah, I think I think something where he's like, I mean, I think they've gotten away from the sort of like essential sweetiness of him. Mm-hmm. So to sort of reestablish that somehow and, you know, being have it, him being put in a position where it is tested, I think has been, it's been a long time since there was anything like his six-year-old sister dying of AIDS happening, you know? Right. I think, I think there's like a, a, a situation which like, it seems like the, you know, the, the current, the current situation on Krakow is like very much is speed, right? Like it seems like things are mostly nice. Well, I will say that the thing um, he comes up in, in X-Force in the, in the beginning of that book is that like Russia is one of the only countries that refuses to recognize Krakowin sovereignty. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think that's an interesting direction in terms of like, he tries to rescue Russian refugees, mutants and bring them to Krakoa and he gets real fucked up and sees a lot of real gnarly shit. So I'm hoping again, I will catch up on that book. That's like my, the next thing I'm going to do. Cause it's the only one I'm behind on. And I don't know if he comes back in it at all yet, but that could take him somewhere interesting. I guess I, what I would like to see is now that we have a real, like, vibrant young leftist movement happening in this country, it would be nice to take him back to his roots as a socialist character. And yeah, emphasize I, was, that. I was about to say, like, in terms of, like, you know, after him seeing modern Russia and all of its, like, oligarchic oil money glory, like, uh, it's sort of, like, become just a. Uh, just kind of like bad 80s America. Right, like he he wouldn't recognize it. Exactly. And for him for him to like sort of like be like, ah, I just, it's time to like reestablish the fucking Soviet man deep in my heart. Right, like it's time. And, you know, obviously the Soviet Union was not without its problems. But in terms of his sort of idyllic life in that farming community where yeah. he felt that communism worked for them and they were happy, you know, Krakoa is essentially a socialist nation. And I would like to see him take more of a role in shaping that because it's how he grew up. And it it was always sort of the perspective that he brought to the team before the rest of them got on board. So I think that would be a nice thing to do with that character. And, And also his sister is so major to the comics right now that I would just love to see more of them interacting. Like they were a little estranged for a while after like the Phoenix thing and other stuff. But they're always kind of a little estranged because like she's kind of evil (laughs) in her dark soul. And I mean, she's the dark child and he is a child of light. You know what I mean? Like that's their, that's their 
inherent tension. But I would love to see, you know, she's one of Krakoa's war commanders now. And I would love to see him proud of her, but also worried about her and sort of have moments with them together. I would love every episode. I'm like, here's another giant size that one shot that I want them to do. But I would love a giant size X-Men Colossus and magic. That's just sort of about them reconnecting after all the shit that's happened to them in the last, you know, 10 odd years or whatever. That'd be beautiful. And having an adventure. I mean, part of the problem is that like their family got killed off in the nineties so they don't have a reason to really go back to Russia. So it would be cool to have them go to Russia to save refugee mutants or whatever, like, like together and to like have a Rasputin adventure in Chechnya or something. I don't know. Like that could be cool. And they meet Rasputin, their great grandfather, because it, it turns out it turns out he was a mutant the whole time. I mean, listen, oh, would I hate that? Honestly, no, that could be funny as hell. Yeah. I would not <laughs> turn up my nose completely at that. Just for Ileana, I think it would be funny because she'd have to fight him. Like it would end with Ileana has to kill literal Rasputin, her great grandfather, which would be fun. Peter's going to throw her at him. Yeah, fastball special with the soul sword. Oh, fuck. Yo, have they, yo, ever, done have they ever done that? Have they ever done that? readers if they've done that write in and let me know and what issue that is yeah if colossus has ever fastball specialed his sister with the soul sword into somebody because that would fucking rule so if it's never happened and anyone from the x room is listening right now please uh incorporate that into an an issue of an x-men book in the near future let me draw a variant cover where that's happening yeah that is one of the coolest (laughs) things i've ever imagined in my life so um like let's please do that what i think will also be really funny is now that kitty is like sort of confirmed by finally i was saying in last week's episode we got into this whole digression about which claremont characters should just be allowed to be lesbians finally and i was just like ayana rasputin is a lesbian let's just do it let's just fucking do it and it would be really funny if she started dating kitty because that would like that would make giant size x-men colossus and magic really funny that's that's really good it's like so um hey we should it's been so long we should like go on a mission together i'm like gonna let's go to chechnya and like fuck some shit up also by the way i'm dating your ex-fiance um would be really really funny if they decide to finally put kitty and iliana together because i feel like if they're gonna put kitty with a woman it's iliana or rachel yeah that would be a really funny sibling point of tension but then they have to find a love interest for colossus a new one which i would like for him i would like him to move on like you don't need to be mooning over the girl you were dating when you were 19 no and i know that superhero comics do that all the time where it's like we met when we were like 12 and now we are the official couple forever but it's like you don't have to do that yeah as someone who's married to someone i met when i was uh 15 yeah you are like a superhero Uh, character you and jaya were like at summer camp together i know that's that said why is colossus mooning over his first girlfriend he could be mooning over the little man that he throws around or who throws him around somehow Mm -hmm. i guess it would need to be someone with a super strength kind of thing because otherwise the the danger of colossus becoming organic steel while you're oh yeah that's a real problem in flagrante could be (laughs) not great again 
What's up to Connor's dad? This is a very vulgar episode of this podcast. I apologize. I'm like I'm like your own personal magic. I'm popping up. And I'm, you I'm, are. I'm jumping around on little my, discs. You are and I'm my Liana, just like stepping discs, opening up, like a demon's <laughs> poking out of your shoulder, and you're just like, hey, let's talk about how much you want to fuck Colossus. This is a family-friendly podcast. It's not. It is actually rated explicit on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's good, because I've been swearing a lot. Oh, no. Yeah, no. This is a swear-heavy podcast. <laughs> One thing that's nice about uh, the current run on X-Men is that they let them swear. It's always, like, asterisked out, but it's very clear from context what they're saying. And so, like, Magic drops F-bombs constantly. And it's just like, yeah, that's a character who would swear a lot. And it feels very correct. So we have now been talking for almost two hours. So I am going to now ask you to play... My game. Matt has, as far as I know, never seen an episode of The Real Housewives. So I sent them oh God. All right. one of those aggregate lists of like the best housewives taglines. I was like, they have taglines like this. Please humor me. It's the game I do every week. So and after Alex Abad Santos challenged me last week to also come up with one. Now I will from now on also come up with one. So I'm not just putting people on the spot. So I do have one, but I will let you go first. All right. So this is a little I, I realize we brought this up a bunch of times, but the one I thought of never watched this wretched program and this is not very good it's not a wretched program it is an incredible program that is slightly politically problematic at times but is also one of the only programs depicting the lives of women over 40 on television so i think it's an important show and also that's a fair that's a fair point full disclosure full disclosure i represent several cast members of the real housewives franchise so you know just putting that out there in my regular job that is not being an x-men podcaster this is my nighttime job that i do for fun what what episode are you gonna have bethany on for if bethany frankel i do not represent bethany frankel to be clear if bethany frankel wanted to talk about literally any x-men character i don't care if she has ever seen like a single second if she just wanted to be like so what's the X-Men? What the fuck is that? Let's talk about it. I'd be like, yes. All I want to do, Bethany, sit with me and tell me how like stupid comic books are. I don't even care. That <laughs> would be a very special episode of the Cerebro podcast. But I digress. What is the tagline you have come up with? He, uh, you know, he turns to the camera. Don't make me show you my fastball. There you go. Not good. The one I came up with is even stupider. What do you got? Um, which is, in Soviet Russia, housewives watch you. Oh, that's worse. Thank you. Yeah, because that's like a real old meme. But it was all I kept thinking was I was like, it's got to be an in Soviet Russia joke. That was that was good. I do find the Housewives game is harder with the men just because the Housewives is such a female show. But I do want to just try to do that every episode for consistency's sake. But now I would like to do this new segment that I've promised because several people did write in and say, please, like, tell me what to buy on Comixology or whatever. You know, someone was like, what's the Siege Perilous? Because I keep talking about it. And if you don't know what the Siege Perilous is, first of all, it doesn't really matter. But it is explained in the Betsy Braddock uh, character file in episode one. It's just this portal that they got given. And if you walk through it, you get sort of reincarnated in a new situation and have no memories. And it was a thing that they did in 1989. And it doesn't really matter. But the pre-Siege Perilous and post-Siege Perilous X-Men is sort of an easy way to refer to the huge like rebrand that happened in like 1990, 1991. So that's why I kind of use it as shorthand sometimes. But anyway, for Piotr, what I would say is, first of all, you just cannot go wrong with, if, you, if you're in it for the long haul, I don't think you can go wrong with just picking up Giant Size X-Men number one and just reading from there, like that original run in the 70s. 
it's really fun. He is a fun, great character. He and Wolverine and Nightcrawler are such fun friends. They have great chemistry. He and Storm. I always kind of, before Kitty entered the picture, I kind of liked the idea of Colossus and Storm maybe getting together because she's also like a very noble character, but in a different way from him. And and they sort of had a rapport that I thought was was cute. But then Kitty showed up and, and he was pursued by Kitty and got into Kitty and then Storm started fucking ladies and Forge but mostly ladies. So, you know, that that was not to be. Anyway, those issues are great. In the 80s, I do think that the stuff with him and Ileana is sensational. I would recommend Inferno, which is an insane storyline. We we were talking about this right before we started filming. Like, Inferno from page to page, you feel like you have taken mescaline. Like, the most insane things happen on every page. But that's a good X-Men story to me. It's a great X-Men story. No, like that, that's that, that functioning where it's just kind of like, I cannot tell what is going on. Every page is too much information for me. I am lost. Yeah. To get to Inferno, though, I would suggest, and this is also what I would suggest for people who were interested in getting into Betsy in the 80s, I would say to start with the Mutant Massacre, which is easy to find collected. And then Mutant Massacre was 1986, and that was such a big hit that after that they did an event every year. So I would say, like, to read Mutant Massacre and then Fall of the Mutants and then Inferno. Mutant Massacre sort of sets up the team that will become the Fall of the Mutants team. Fall of the Mutants is when they apparently die and then begin the Australian era. And then Inferno is sort of the climax of that era where they reveal to everyone that they actually are alive. And it's Inferno is two storylines sort of happening simultaneously. There's the Cyclops and Madeline Pryor storyline, which as a Maddie stan, Inferno is a book I have complicated feelings about, but it's really good, even if you love Maddie and are a little upset about what happens to her. But the other main storyline in it is the magic storyline that Colossus factors into, and it's really, really good. After that, I would say there just isn't a ton of specific Colossus stories in the 90s that I would like point to. I do I do like the later run of Excalibur. I think it's good. I think the stuff where he's an acolyte is pretty good. I don't remember which exact issues those are. He defects to the acolytes during Fatal Attractions, which is a 1993 event. But I don't remember quite how long that period. He's not there for lasts. that. He's not there for that long. He like he's also not gets there like, for that long. He, he and gets he like brain, he gets a brain damage and then goes to work for Magneto. Yeah, it's complicated. I think his best material is in the seventies and eighties. I, um, I agree. So that's really where I would go. Perestroika was not kind to our friend Colossus. No, not really. And I, I will say, if you really do love the Kitty and Piotr relationship, and you don't uh, mind some of Joss Whedon's um, (laughs) peccadillos, let's say, maybe would be the word I would use. Great word choice, baby. Then Astonishing might be a book you would enjoy, Astonishing X-Men in 2004. I just, it's not for me. I don't really have anything else that I would super recommend for him. For me, he is very much a classic character who has floundered a little bit in the time since that Claremont run. To go back to the previous characters that we've covered, I feel much the same about Nightcrawler. I think that 
just start with giant size and just keep reading. And Nightcrawler also goes through a lot of stuff in Mutant Massacre. But after Mutant Massacre, Nightcrawler goes to Excalibur. And so the big thing I would recommend there is just all of Excalibur Volume 1. It is my favorite X-Men book of that late 80s, early 90s period. Um, the Crosstime Caper, which is like 1989 to 1990, is so fun. Kurt gets to like swashbuckle through a million dimensions. I don't really talk about the alternate timelines on here that much, but Nightcrawler is very cool in Age of Apocalypse. So that's one that might be worth checking out if you're into Nightcrawler. So those are the, those are sort of the Kurt stories I would recommend. Um, some of the miniseries are really good, the Nightcrawler miniseries. I would just say, like, go back to episode two and listen to Daniel Kibblesmith talk about some of those miniseries and, and see if any of them sound like they would strike your fancy. The Dave Cochran miniseries in the 80s where he and Lockheed, like, travel through dimensions is extremely good. And I kind of enjoyed the the recent Chris Claremont one because it was all about Margali and Amanda, who I find to be fun. And then for Betsy, if you could find the 80s Captain Britain stuff by Alan Moore and Alan Davis, it is amazing. And I super recommend that you read that, especially now that she is Captain Britain and that te- now that Teeny Howard is bringing so much of that lore back. And so is Jonathan Hickman and Hickman and Howard are doing that big upcoming event that starts in like a week, Ten of Swords, which is the first big Dawn of X franchise-wide event and uh, is going to be very Captain Britain focused. So if you can find those 80s Captain Britain stories that I would super recommend reading. After that, I would say again with Psylocke that the key stories to read in the 80s are The Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, and Inferno. After that, if you want Psylocke just read the main X-Men title in the 90s because Ninja Psylocke was a mainstay of that book. But I think the best quote-unquote Asian Psylocke Ninja Betsy in Kanon's body stories are in Rick Remender's Uncanny X-Force, which again was just like not necessarily super to my taste, but is a very good book. So I would recommend that if you want that version of the character. And then honestly, I really love what Teeny Howard is doing in the new run of Excalibur with Betsy as Captain Britain. It's not that far in yet, but Teeny's my client. So I know that there's a lot of really good stuff coming. I mean, she can't tell storylines to me or anything because she's a, she's a pro, but we have talked so much about the character that I know she really gets the character and is going to do some really cool stuff as that book evolves. So um, I'm looking forward to that. For Emma Frost, I would say you should first read the Dark Phoenix saga. She's not in that much of it, but it does introduce her. And also, frankly, anyone who likes the X-Men should read the Dark Phoenix saga because it's the most famous X-Men story. And part of why it is is because it's really fucking good. It has been imitated a lot since. And there are some gender politics elements of it that are like not perfect, but it was 1980 and Chris Claremont had revolutionized what a female superhero could be in a lot of ways. And that book is, is about Jean, and I think it holds up for the most part. And then after that, I would say in the 80s, Emma's best stuff is in New Mutants, when she's the Hellion's headmistress and sort of comes into conflict with the New Mutants because the Hellions are their rivals. Uh, that stuff is really good. After that, honestly... A lot of people love Generation X. It never really did it for me. So that's a, That's just a, your mileage may vary. The huge Emma thing that I think everyone should read, because I think everyone should read it in general, is uh, Grant Morrison's New X-Men. You can find it collected pretty easily. And um, 
it saved the franchise. I mean, the late 90s X-Men was really floundering to the point where they brought back Chris Claremont because they were like who they had fired in 91 and were like, Chris, can you save the X-Men? And he was like, I'll try. But like, it didn't quite click together. I think there was a lot of editorial interference with Claremont's return initially. I don't know. I don't know all the behind the scenes there, but what, for whatever reason, that story just didn't hit. So they were like, okay, let's just do a real big relaunch again. And they poached Morrison from DC and he really just wrote an incredible fucking book. After that with Emma, I just, again, the decimation era stuff is not my favorite stuff. So I, I don't have a strong recommendation there. And then I would really just say, jump ahead to the current era because Emma is incredible right now under Jonathan Hickman in the main book and Jerry Duggan in Marauders. They both really get her and are writing her brilliantly. So uh, she's, she's also very fun in, it's also Jerry Duggan, but in uh, the teen cable book where cable is dating all five of the Stepford cuckoos, which Emma is annoyed about. Those would sort of be my recommendations for the characters we've, uh, we've covered so far. I really do think in terms of a jumping on point, that there are two really good jumping on points for classic X-Men stuff. And they are just start with giant size number one and just keep going or start with the mutant massacre and just keep going. Cause basically giant size to dark Phoenix saga is like an arc. And then days of future past happens right after that and is incredible. And is just like a great standalone kind of story and then from like 81 to 85, it's sort of Claremont figuring out what the book is after Dark Phoenix Saga. So it becomes much more about Storm, Cyclops and Madeline get married, Cyclops retires, and it's sort of about reconfiguring the book. There's a lot of stuff with Kitty, Rogue comes in there, and that stuff is good, but it's not necessarily like essential. And so I think that if what you want is to get into the meat of the 80s Claremont stuff, you can start with Mutant Massacre and then just keep going until 91 when Claremont gets fired. And then, you know, just pick and choose your 90s X-Men, because I don't, it's just not my thing. Age of Apocalypse is cool. And then I think New X-Men is also a really good jumping on point if you want something more contemporary. It was designed for new readers, and there's lots of Easter eggs if you're someone who had read the old stuff, but you don't really need to have read any of the old stuff to read more since New X-Men. All you really need to know is, like, Jean and Scott were basically, like, the popular couple in high school and are high school sweethearts and have been married for a while and their marriage is like not so great when it starts. That's really all you need to know. And then if if all of this is too daunting for you, just start with House of X Powers of 10 from last year, which is a, another sort of soft reboot like New X-Men and so far is uh, fucking incredible. So those would be my recommendations. That's uh, the end of that segment, which will be much shorter because I'll only talk about one character from now on. <laughs> Matt, do you have any final thoughts on Colossus before we wrap up? Um, not that we haven't covered. Um, I just, yeah, I think they should let him be a communist again. That'd be cool. Let him be a bisexual communist. It's the it's the best thing. It's the best thing for a person to be. All right. Well, then why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and on the internet and what uh, work of yours you might want them to look at? Do some plugs. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, <clears throat> at Lubchansky. It's L-U-B-C-H-A-N-S-K-Y. It's just my last name. Um, I'm really proud of a book that The Nib just put out called Be Gay Do Comics that just won 
um, an award over the weekend. It just uh, a soft cover version of it just got put out uh, from IDW, and you could actually find that in your local bookstore. Um, and it's a anthology of nonfiction comics, all queer stuff, and it's very good, and I highly recommend it. I love that book, and I'm uh, I'm proud of you guys that it won an award. That's really fucking cool. I don't have awards. So whenever one of my friends wins an award, I'm like, yes, love that for you. Love an award. Well, you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can email Cerebro with your comments, questions, concerns, feedback at CerebroCast at gmail.com. I can't promise I will address every email I receive on the air, but I have been appreciating the feedback and the really sweet notes that some of you have sent. Uh, And obviously I incorporated some of that feedback into this episode. So this podcast is still pretty new and I want to fine tune it and make it the best possible product it can be. So keep letting me know what you want to hear and uh, what you're enjoying. So until next time, everybody, um, bye. And to... Uh, our Jewish listeners, uh, Shana Tova, it'll be a little bit later when you actually hear this, but it's tomorrow while we're recording. So happy 5781. Let's hope it's better than 5780. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks again for joining me, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is 